Welcome to the North Main Podcast, a production of North Main Street Church of God in Butler, Pennsylvania. This podcast brings you North Main's messages every week. We strive to know God intimately, grow in Christ continually, and go for Him daily. I invite you to listen in today as we explore the Bible and learn about its unchanging truths for living life God's way. Let's listen in to this week's message. Well, good morning. El, uh, Elmer, isn't it sad his shotgun has been taken away? That has, you could probably, uh, this is live streaming. I'm sorry. That was, a. Uh, actually, it's not Elmer Fudd. This is a, a, a soldier from Elf, Elf. This is not, the way this is going so far this morning, I might want to close this up and do an altar call, so. This guy was a soldier in World War II. I wanted you to hear his story, the miraculous story, actually, that he encountered uh, during the war. His name is Ben Diner. Ben, Dun- ben Diner? Ben Dinner? B-E-N-D-I-N-E-R. How would you pronounce that? So I had this all, I had gone through this, I had the pronunciation down, and it's just gone. So I'm just going to call him Elmer Do Not Say Fud. Okay. He describes a bombing run during World War II when he was there. Uh, it was over Germany. They were going to be bombing uh, the city of Kassel where there were a lot of munitions and enemy uh, combatants from the Nazi regime. Listen to what he says. He says, our B-17, and I'm not even going to pronounce the name, even though I went through it several times this morning. You know how they name planes? If you want to know it, come up and read it for yourself after my message. It was barraged, he says, by a flak from Nazi aircraft, uh, anti-aircraft guns. And that was not unusual, he said. But on this particular occasion, he says, our gas tanks were hit. He says, later, as I reflected on the miracle of a 20-millimeter shell piercing the fuel tank without touching off an explosion, our pilot, Bon Fox, told me it was not quite that simple. On the morning following the raid, Bon had gone down to ask the crew chief for that shell as a souvenir of an unbelievable luck that they had on that bombing raid. So they had fished out this shell from the gas tank, and he said, hey, since I'm the pilot, do you mind if I have that shell just as a memento of that bombing raid and, and, and how we were actually not exploded over the city. Listen to what happened. The crew chief told Bond that not just one shell, but 11 had actually been found in the gas tanks. 11 unexploded shells were only uh, one was sufficient to blast us out of the sky. Now, these anti-aircraft guns in these shells, so the shell actually has a casing. When you shoot the casing, the shell goes out, right? And in the shell, there are certain shells that they will stuff with many explosives so that when those shells hit their target, they will cause a mini explosion, okay? So one shell went unexploded, but there were 11, what are the chances that 11 shells go unexploded in this gas tank? Listen to what happens. It was, he says, it was as if the sea had been parted for us. 
Even after 35 years, so awesome an event leaves me shaken, especially after I heard the rest of the story. And here's the rest of the story. He said he was told that the shells had been sent to the armorers to be diffused. So what they do is they take them to a place, a special place, to cut them open and diffuse them before they, you know, throw them away or whatever, because you don't want a live round sitting around somewhere. The armorers told him that intelligence had picked them up. They could not say why at the time, but Bond eventually sought out the answer. Apparently, when the armorers opened each of those shells, they found no explosive charge in those shells. They were as clean as a whistle, he says, and just as harmless. Empty? He says not all of them were empty. One contained a carefully rolled up piece of paper. On it was scrawled something in check. The intelligence people scoured the base for a person who could read the language. Eventually, they found one decipherer who could come and translate the note. Translated, the note in this one unexploded shell says, this is all we can do for you now. God is in control. Have you ever thought about that phrase? It's something we say in the church all the time. Oh, God is in control. God is in control. And I know, being a pastor over two decades of ministry now, I've had people come to me, well, if your God is so in control, why did he allow X, Y, and Z to happen? If God's in control, why is there a pandemic? Why doesn't he just snuff it out of existence? If God is in control, why isn't there peace in the world? If God is in control, why did he allow my spouse to die, my child to die, my fill in the blank? If God is truly in control and all of this stuff is still continuing to happen, then I'm not sure I want to serve or worship that kind of a God. It's one of the most challenging things for a pastor to have to deal with. And we have theological answers for this, but let me ask you, does a theological answer suffice when you're going through one of the most tumultuous, difficult times of life? When truly answers do not come to every single situation this side of heaven, when we have to put a big question mark over why did God not intervene in this situation, but he did in this one, we have to wonder, don't we? Now this, I'm, it sounds like I'm not giving a strong case for God, but let me continue with the message this morning. How is God in control? We know that God is in control oftentimes by hindsight being 2020. Have you heard of hindsight being 2020? Right? You've heard this terminology. Have you ever in your lifetime looked backward in, in your history and said, boy, am I glad that that one thing did not happen the way I had hoped and dreamed and wished and prayed it would have? Have you ever said that? Have you ever said, I'm glad this one thing happened that I hated. I wasn't, I didn't want this thing to happen, but it happened, and, and here we are. And you know what? I'm better for it. Thank goodness that thing that I didn't want to happen happened, because if it didn't happen, then I wouldn't be right here at this time and at this place. 
So we can ask the question, is God really in control? And my tendency is to lean on the side of saying yes, and here's the reason why. Because I'm a true, ardent believer in what I read in Scripture. It is a non-negotiable work of art, work of God. I have tested it my lifetime, and many of you longer than me have tested it, and you've come to this place in life where you know it to be true. Can you explain every single detail of every word on every page in the scripture? No, but you've read enough, you know enough, you've seen enough to know that what's in there is verifiable. And then the areas where you can't explain everything, you trust the God who inspired it, to know that though it may not play out or work out in the way that I desire or the way that I want, that he is ultimately in control and he is good, he is holy, he is loving and can be trusted even when things don't work out exactly the way I want them to. Even when tragedy strikes, there is still a God who sits on the throne and that nothing evades his attention. Today's sermon is entitled, The Return. And the key point this morning is this, and you don't put it on the screen just yet, but it's this. God can change the heart of kings. Do you believe that God can change the heart of kings? Because here's the thing. Some of the most powerful people on the face of the earth are heads of state. All the way throughout human history, heads of state are usually the ones who hold the most power and the most control. Now, if they held the most power and the most control without anybody over them, that's a scary thought. I mean, we've seen how that plays out, haven't we? We've seen Hitler in Nazi Germany. We've seen Stalin. We've seen Lenin. We've seen Mao Zedong in China. And there are current-day leaders that you might be aware of that may fit the bill for some crazy, tyrannical, dictator kind of people. But if there is no God in control over everything, then we are out of luck. Would you agree? I am digressing a little bit from my notes, but I see a lot of church people that feel that way. You know how fear has pervaded the church right now? We think the pandemic's going to kill us all, and it has killed many. But that fear has so pervaded the very soul and fabric of not only our society, but every society across the face of the earth, that what we're focused on is the destruction of a virus rather than the God who can heal from a virus or who is over and in control over everything. Yes, people have lost their lives. It's a great travesty, and I don't ever want to discount that, but the question mark is, if God's in control, is he not also in control of this, and where should our focus be if he's the one who has the answers to all problems in the world? I see too many believers in Christ focusing on the problems rather than the solution to the problem. You ever sing that song in church, Jesus is the answer? For the world today, above him there's no other. Jesus is the way. We used to sing that chorus when I was a kid in church. But see, I think we just do it lip service. Because truly, action should speak what our words sing or say. 
Again, I digress. So let's get into the message today. We, st- we finished a series last month that uh, some of you have told me was very depressing, and it really was, because we've been following along the Israelites in the Old Testament. They had lost their nation. The northern kingdom got sacked by Assyria. The southern kingdom then got taken over by the Babylonians. Guess what? The Babylonians, one of the greatest kingdoms of ancient history, would be taken over by the Medo-Persians. The Medo-Persians would eventually be taken over by the Greek under Alexander the Great, the Greeks. And then the Romans would then take over Greece into what we call the Greco-Roman society. I'm just giving you a little bit of a history lesson. If you want to check it out, check it out. But here's where the biblical story plays into human history so it can be verifiable for us today to know that what we're reading is truth that's based in history. The Babylonians took over the southern kingdom Judah. They stormed the city walls of Jerusalem, tore the walls down stone by stone, and then they went in and they burned down every building and housing complex in the city of Jerusalem, even the holy temple of God, which sat inside the city walls. The holy temple of God was the place where the Jewish people would offer sacrifices to God on behalf of the sins of their nation, and it now was destroyed. What were the Jewish people to do? The Jewish people at this point had been taken off into captivity. Those that hadn't been slaughtered by the Babylonians or the Assyrians, they had taken them and they had put them throughout the whole kingdom of Babylon in what we call the great exile or diaspora. So now you have divided and conquered the people of Jerusalem. If you divide the people, they can't coalesce and they can't be strong together. But now, flash forward, 70 years, nearly two generations of time have passed. God's judgment has come on the people of Jerusalem, Judea, the northern kingdom. They've been dispersed throughout the whole kingdom. And this guy, this king, this emperor over the Medo-Persian empire who has taken over the Babylonian empire has come into authority. His name is Cyrus. Cyrus, the great king of the Medo-Persian empire, just one of the kings of the Medo-Persian empire, but the one that's written about in scripture, is the one who began to tell all the exiles throughout all of the different cities of now the Medo-Persian kingdom, you can go back home. Seventy years later, you may go back home, rebuild your city, Jerusalem. Rebuild the temple of your place of worship. And we pick up his story today, this story today, in Ezra chapter 1. Ezra is in the Old Testament. It's after, uh, it's around Nehemiah and uh, around that part in there. If you can't find it, look in the table of contents. It will be on the screen. I'm reading from the New Living Testament today. Our New Living Translation, not Testament, New Living Translation. I'm only going to read the 11 verses, uh, and it reads like this. In the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, the Lord fulfilled the prophecy he had given through Jeremiah. Jeremiah is a very long prophetic book in the Old Testament that you would actually would do good for you to read because 
if you are glossing over the book of Jeremiah, you don't realize how wicked the nation, uh, uh, the nation of God's people had become. We talk about idolatry. Idolatry is making gods out of things that are not gods. And they actually carved gods back in the day out of wood and stone, or they would mold them out of these precious metals, and they would set them on their mantles or carry them on their donkeys when they were moving. If they were nomadic tribes, they would, they would make these idols, if you will. But we make idols today if we think idolatrous behavior has gone by the wayside because we now live in the 21st century and there's nothing to idolize. Well, we actually have TV shows that actually talk about idolization, right? And I know it's just a play on words, but let's be honest. Anything in your life that takes the sole focus and attention can become your God. It can be money, it can be success, it can be your job or that next promotion, it can be your vehicle, your house, it can be your children, your husband, your wife. It could be any number of things. So you have to check yourself. God, have I made an idol of someone or something in my life? Have they taken the place that is only reserved for you? Blaise Pascal, great French mathematician, but also a great theological thinker, basically coined this term, there's a God-shaped hole in all of us. Now, he didn't say it that way. A great music, uh, musical group said that not, not too long ago. Uh, but there is this God-shaped space or chasm within the hearts of all people that as image bearers of the very God of all gods that is reserved for him. We try to put everything under the sun in that place. And it doesn't fit very well because here's what I know. When you put somebody or something in that place in your life that only God is reserved for, Guess what things and people do? They disappoint you. They let you down. They frustrate you. They fade and wither over time. And when that happens, what happens to that place in your heart where you've placed an idol that God should belong in in that space? It's a very depressing cycle of behavior. I see it all the time. I see it with people with addictions. I see it with people... Uh, who maybe don't have overt addictions, but they have these vices in their life that they tend to give into all the time. Maybe you have an issue with anger, frustration, hatred in your own life. Maybe there's unforgiveness that you've allowed to take the place in your heart where should be reserved for God. Again, I digress, but let me continue with this. In the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, the Lord fulfilled the prophecy he had given to the, through Jeremiah. He stirred the heart of Cyrus who stirred the heart of Cyrus? God did. Of course he did. He stirred the heart of Cyrus to put this proclamation in writing and to send it throughout his whole kingdom. This is what the king Cyrus of Persia says. The Lord, the God of heaven. Now, let me stop there. When you see anywhere in Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, the word LORD in all caps, L-O-R-D, or where you see the word God, G-O-D, in all caps, that is referring to the very standard name given, to God, uh, given by God of himself in the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3 to Moses. When Moses says, you know, God's trying to call him to go back and set the Israelites free from captivity in Egypt. 
Moses asked God this question into the burning bush. He says, all right, who shall I say is sending me? Give me your name. And the very voice from the bush says, I am that I am. Or some translations say, I will be what I will be. This is what we call Yahweh. It's the Jewish term for the name of God. It is so sacred, even the most orthodox Jews would not say it today. Yahweh, I am that I am. And so Cyrus is using the very name that the Jews would use for their God. He says, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. And let's be honest, that is a true statement. He has appointed me to build him a temple in Jerusalem, or at Jerusalem, which is in Judea, or Judah, pardon me, would become Judea later. Any of you who are his people may go to Jerusalem in Judah and rebuild this temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, who lives in Jerusalem, and may your God be with you. Wherever this Jewish remnant is found, let their neighbors contribute toward their expenses by giving them silver and gold. Supplies for the journey and livestock as well as a voluntary offering for the temple of God in Jerusalem. If you remember what I said last time, at the final destruction of Jerusalem in the area of Judea or Judah, what did I tell you? Jeremiah was talking to the remaining last king of Judah over God's nation. And he says, it's time to give up. God has decided he's going to He's going to basically take over this area and let you guys be taken over by the Babylonians. There's no turning back. God's judgment is imminent. It's going to happen. But Jeremiah said to King Zedekiah, the Jewish king, God said he won't destroy Jerusalem, burn it to the ground, and he won't destroy the temple if you just surrender. If you surrender... All will go well. And if you remember, I gave the same correlation. I'm not saying we should do this today. All I'm saying is that would be like the United States after having gone so far into the weeds, morally, ethically, and otherwise, that God says, fine, I'm done blessing your nation. I'm done being your protector. I'm done and it would be as if God's sending one messenger to the people of the United States saying, you need to surrender and it will be easier for you than if you, if you fight against this kingdom. Because if you fight against the kingdom, you're fighting against God and this is what's going to happen. You're going to be ransacked. You're going to be torn limb from limb. It's not going to be pretty. So just surrender. It'd be like the United States being told, you need to surrender to Russia. You need to surrender to China. And you, you will be saved, but you will no longer have your own nation. Now, I know that sounds so ludicrous, but this is what was going on in that day and age. I'm trying to give you a little bit of an analogy so you have an understanding. But now, imagine, flash forward 70 years, another kingdom has overthrown the kingdom that overthrew your kingdom. And you're standing there, and the king of this new pagan nation says, you know what? Your all's God has told me that I need to let you guys go back home. Rebuild your city, rebuild your temple. Begin to worship there again. Can you imagine? 
I mean, try to think through this with me. And he goes on to say, and may your God be with you. In verse 5, he says, Then God stirred the hearts of the priests and the Levites and the leaders of the tribes of Judah and Benjamin to go to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple of the Lord. And all their neighbors assisted by giving them articles of silver and gold, supplies for the journey, and livestock. They gave them many valuable gifts in addition to all the voluntary gifts. This would be the Medo-Persians are saying, Here, take my gold, take my silver, take some of this livestock for your journey. I mean, can you imagine And then in verse 7, King Cyrus himself brought out the articles that King Nebuchadnezzar, one of the kings of Babylon, had taken from the Lord's temple in Jerusalem and had had them placed in the temple of his own gods. So these great candelabras, the menorah, if you will, these, these, uh, these beautiful golden pieces and implements that were used in holy worship to God in God's temple in Jerusalem, had been put in the temple of pagan gods. Cyrus directed Mithrida, the treasurer of Persia, to count these items and present them to Sheshbazar, the leader of the exiles returning to Judah. And this is the list of all the items that were returned. Listen to this. Gold basins, there were 30 of those. And the basins were used to wipe and wash their hands. Silver basins, there were a 1,000 of those. Silver incense burners, 29. Gold bowls, 30 of those. Silver bowls, 410. And other items which are too numerous to put in a list, there are a thousand. In all, there were 5,400 articles of gold and silver. Shesprazar bought, or excuse me, brought all of these along with the exiles. Uh, when the exiles went from Babylon to Jerusalem. Can you imagine? They basically opened up the treasury and they said, listen, Nebuchadnezzar, when we took over, we found these in his temples and in the vaults that he kept his treasures in. We want you to have them back. So you take everything back. Now, imagine being an Israelite in exile and you're hearing this edict from Cyrus. After you, your family, have, have seen great tragedy and destruction, and those stories have been passed down now a couple generations, what are you going to do? Are you going to be kind of like jaw drop moment? Have I lost you? Are you with me? I mean, I want you to, I mean, come with me on this journey. Uh, I mean, imagine yourself, you've been living in bondage. You've been living in exile. When I go back to Kentucky, which is where I'm originally from, there's a feeling as if I'm going home. I'm in exile in western Pennsylvania. (laughs) I'm kidding. I'm kidding. We love it here. It's all good. So, sorry, tongue in cheek. So, wherever you grew up, and maybe you've come back home here, where you've been away, you've been a transplant somewhere else, and there's a part of you that when you come back, there's a sense of of belonging, a sense of being home. And now Cyrus is doing this. He's saying, go back home. Go back and enjoy the place where you once lived. Rebuild it. Farm the land again. Do what you necessarily need to, to inhabit the land, to build your temple, and to be the people of worship that you once were. 
God can change the heart of kings. The question is, can he change your heart? The first point, and there are only two points, and I'll be done here shortly, is why is it important to know that God can change the heart of kings? Why? Why is it important to understand that God has control? I want to break this down today. First point is this. God is not only aware of what's going on in the world, he is active in all things, bringing about his perfect will. That is hard for some people to chew on. It really is. If God is active, then let me see evidence of his activity. Let me read for you in Acts chapter 17. If you don't have that in your notes, jot it down. Acts chapter 17, verse 24 through 28. Luke, who is the author of Acts, writes this in the New Testament. He is the God who made the world and everything in it. Who is the God? God himself, Yahweh, who we talked about a moment ago. He is the God who made everything in the world. Since he is Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't live in man-made temples. Now, I'm flashing forward. They were to go back and rebuild the temple, but now God in Acts doesn't live in man-made temples because Jesus came, God in the flesh, and he established his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven through people, and now through the power of the Holy Spirit, where the body of Christ gathers, there is the, the image of the very God of all gods and the very place of the temple. This building that we inhabit right now is not a church. That's hard for you to think of, I know, because where do, we, we, we say, where do you go to church? Actually, it's not where you go to church because the church is the body of Christ, the people of God who come together to worship and to pray and to celebrate this God whom we serve and believe in and love with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's in this place of corporate worship where we assemble together to in one sense say amen to the holy word of God and what he's done in our lives. That's why the writer of Hebrews says we should not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. And if we are apart, it should be only for temporary purposes. So, I digress again. Since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, Acts chapter 17, he doesn't live in man-made temples and human hands can't serve his needs for he has no needs. I have to remind myself as a pastor, God, you don't need me to accomplish your purpose or your will. And when ministry starts to get built on my shoulders or on my name, I get really leery and really scared because guess what? I'm not going to be here forever. Even if I, li even if I die, <laughs> that would be really scary to die in the pulpit preaching, but even if I die, I won't be here forever. But God's ministry will continue on until the second coming of Christ. We can all agree on that. And so if you're coming here because of me, you're coming for the wrong reasons. If you're coming because of the coffee and the donuts, or because you like the shape of the building, or because you like what programs we might offer, or because you like any number of any other thing than to worship the God of heaven and earth with the body of Christ, you're coming for the wrong reasons. Because God doesn't dwell in temples made by men, 
and nor does he have any needs, as if we're going to bring him something that he needs. Actually, the real revelation is we need him. And when we gather together, we challenge one another to good works because we realize without him, we can do nothing of worth. Okay, I'm glad we're on the same page. Verse 26, from one man... He created all the nations throughout the whole earth. He's speaking of Adam in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. He decided beforehand, beforehand when they should rise and when they should fall, he determined their boundaries. Okay, that, uh, I don't like that part. Wait a minute. From one man he created all the nations throughout the whole earth and he decided beforehand when they should rise and fall? And he determined their boundaries? Oh, I don't like that. But let's be honest. Will any earthly kingdom withstand the test of time into eternity? There is one kingdom that will. It's God's kingdom. What is the main subject Jesus taught about in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? It wasn't love, it wasn't salvation, it wasn't forgiveness, it wasn't grace or mercy. You know the one main theme Jesus talked about, taught about, talked about, preached about, was the kingdom of God. Now we could have a whole sermon series on the kingdom of God, but suffice it to say, it's in a nutshell, the kingdom of God is heaven. It is the place where God dwells. It is a place where God's glory is felt in all of its fullness. Who are the citizens of that kingdom? Anyone who has bowed their knee to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and has allowed him to come into their lives and who's allowed him to lead them is a citizen of the kingdom of God. It's also referred to as the kingdom of heaven at times. See, this is a place where God dwells. It's not a building made by men. You know where the temple of God is now? We are the temple of the holy God. In Acts chapter 1, if you flash forward 17 verses in the book of Acts, you see the day of Pentecost happening, the Holy Spirit coming down, resting on the disciples like flames of fire, the mighty rushing wind. And then they go out and filter into the streets and they begin to speak in the languages of all those that have gathered for this festival of Pentecost, all the surrounding regions uh, that the Jews had come in from, and they say, how is it these, these, these men can speak in our language when we clearly see them as being from, from Galilee? They're, they're Nazarene. They're from the, the, the region of Nazareth. How in the world can they speak in our language? They must be drunk. I've never seen, I've seen people get drunk and babble, and nobody knows what they're saying, but I've never seen anybody get drunk and start speaking in French who'd never had the capability to do that before. Do you know what I'm talking about? So this was happening. And so, so now, where does God's Holy Spirit dwell? Where's God's presence? It's in the presence of the body of Christ, you and I. We are citizens of that kingdom if you're a believer in Christ and you're a follower of Christ. And where you go, you take that kingdom with you. You are a kingdom representative. It's like when I go to a different country, I have to take a passport. What does my passport have on it? United States of America. So I am a representative of the United States wherever I go outside of this country. But where I go in the name of Jesus, more importantly, I'm a citizen of that kingdom. 
And that kingdom will never wither nor fade, but it will last and stand the test of time. All other kingdoms will pass away. But not only his word, but his kingdom will remain forever and forever. Wouldn't it benefit us to be a part of that kingdom that will last forever rather than the kingdoms of this world? Now, I'm not degradating or degrading the country in which we live. It's the best country on the face of the earth. But if that becomes my sole reason for existence, then I'm in trouble. I think it's one of the best. I'm privileged to live in one of the most amazing countries in the world. But before I'm a citizen of a kingdom of this world, I'm a citizen of God's kingdom first. So why does God allow certain things to happen? According to the prophecies of Jeremiah, they would be exiled for 70 years before returning home. And under the authority of King Cyrus, that actually happened. You can actually calculate from the very first point when the exiles started to be shipped out before the destruction of the temple was a right at 70 years. You cannot make this stuff up. When Cyrus then gives the edict to go back. And again, throughout the two decades of church ministry, I've told you, I have many people ask me, if God's in control of everything in the world and can, be, and can orchestrate and bring about his perfect will, then why doesn't he put an end to the evil in the world? Why do bad things happen to good people? Now, we've talked about this over the past several weeks. Jesus even says when some guy comes up to him, a religious leader, good teacher, we've heard you say, and Jesus stops him and says, wait, 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 you call me good? There's only one good, the Father in heaven. There was no one good but the Father. We are all born into sin. Romans 3.23, we've all sinned and we all fall short of the glorious standard of God. Okay, so there is no one really good except God himself and Jesus and the Holy Spirit, the three in one, the Godhead. They are perfect. They alone are good. So there is really no good person this side of heaven. But I contend that the reason God allows certain things to happen and continues to work the way he does within the world is because of his mercy. And let me, let me explain what I mean here. If by mercy we mean that we don't receive what we deserve, which is death, because we're all sinners, then God's willingness to not bring an end to the world is an act of mercy in the sense that he is working to draw more people to him or to save them or bring them home, so to speak, rather than wiping everyone from the face of the earth the way he did during the time of Noah and the great flood. It's his mercy that holds back his judgment in our day and age. He could stop everything in an instant. But do you know there may be even people within the sound of my voice this morning that are right on the edge of making a decision. And for God's glory, he holds back that wrath because of his mercy, because he doesn't wish anyone to perish, but that all would have eternal life. And so he waits. He orchestrates he does things that maybe we don't understand in the fullness of their meaning, but he is good. Why didn't he do, you know what? We can ask the why didn't he or why ifs until we're blue in the face, but it comes down ultimately to a decision. Does it not? 
I could continue to ask questions to my dying breath and may not know every answer. As a pastor, I've devoted my life to the study of the word. I have degrees in the word. And I still don't know everything. And if you find a person, a professor, or a theologian that says they do, steer clear. Because they don't. As I've told you before, the more I learn, the more I realize I don't know. It's this ever-expanding world of knowledge that I cannot attain this side of heaven because my mind is finite, whereas he is infinite. Paul even talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We call it the love chapter. But in there, he says, for now, we look through a glass dimly. We don't see everything in detail. We can see vague images have you seen these old, like early, you know, in the 18th, or 18th century, 19th century glass? It's, it's kind of wavy, marbled, and, and you could see enough to make out human figures and stuff on the other side. The glass in Jesus' day and age and in Paul's day and age was very gritty. It was not clear, but it did provide a layer of protection from the elements if you were rich enough to have it. But you could see through it dimly. So Paul's using imagery of his day and age to say, now we see through, this is my analogy, Paul says. It's like looking through a glass. And people say, oh yeah, you can't really see much through that glass. I mean, you could see a human figure or maybe a four-legged animal, but you, you can make that out, but you don't see all the detail. It's like that. And it, you hear, you'll hear me say, it's like a thousand-piece jigsaw puzzle where you only have 750 pieces. You have enough to put together this picture, and you get a vague idea with those missing pieces of what it actually is because your mind begins to fill in some of the blanks, but you're just not sure because you're missing those 250 pieces. For now, we see through a glass dimly, but we know and we trust that he is good. We will know as we are known when we see him face to face. All answers will be, or all, all questions will be answered when we see him. It'll be like, oh, I get it now. I get it why this happened and why that didn't happen. It makes so much sense. The second point really quickly this morning is this. And I'm going to have our cardboard testimony people step out for a moment. Uh, we have um, something coming up in a few minutes. I don't want you to check out on us. It seems like half our congregation is leaving. But uh, they, they are serving a purpose to close out our service today that I want you to stick around and be a part of and to see. The second point is this really quickly. God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his good purpose. This has been one of the most horribly mistranslated verses in all of scripture. Let me read you this verse in context, context in the book of Romans chapter 8. This is one of Paul's greatest works of literature. This is a letter he wrote, and almost it's, it's a, a, his magnum opus, if you will. This is his master's thesis, his doctoral thesis. But in Romans chapter 8, listen to what he writes. What we, Romans chapter 8, I'm starting with verse 18, if you want to follow along. What we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory that he will reveal to us later. When you first came to Christ, did anybody tell you that you will suffer? 
It's going to be great. You're going to love it. I mean, it's just all going to get better. All your problems will be fixed. No. It is not a great selling point for Jesus to say, unless you eat my body and drink my blood, John chapter 6, you can have no part of me. I'm not really into the cannibal thing, Jesus. And so it said the masses walked away because it was too hard for them. He wasn't literally talking about eating his body and drinking his blood. He was talking about you need to be fully in. You cannot be one foot in, one foot in. You can't be following me because you want more fish and loaves. Read before that, that's what happened. He was the latest, greatest guy. Look, the miracle Jesus. He's in town. Let's follow him. See what we can get. I've been wanting a thousand bucks in gold. Can you give it to me? And so Jesus is drawing a line in the sand. He says, no, 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 uh-uh. You're not coming to me for what you can get. You need to come to me for me. And if I'm not enough, then nothing else will be. That's hard. Because I see too often, and I've done this myself, I've been guilty of this myself. Jesus, can you fix this? Can you, can you give me this? Can you help me out of this? Can you? And sometimes he does, other times he doesn't. And I see people say, well, he's not helping me. He's left me alone. He's not. You know what? God is with you no matter what. The question is, are you with him? Because he says he will walk through the deepest, darkest valleys of the shadow of death with you, but you may not feel it. We live in a country, in a, in, a, in a culture that's all based on feelings and emotions. Why do you think we're in such utter chaos right now? Because people know how to play on our emotions. I've been accused of that. Well, you just play on the emotions of people to just get them to make a decision for Christ so that they'll give you money. It has nothing to do with, if you don't give a dime, I don't care. What I do care about is you knowing this life-giving Savior who could save you from the pits of hell and give you eternal life, this side of heaven, as well as in the here and beyond. So here's the deal. He goes on to write, for all creation is waiting eagerly for that future day when God will reveal who his children really are. Have you ever seen volcanoes explode? Have you ever uh, uh, felt the shaking of an earthquake? First time I did that, I was in Guatemala on a mission trip, and I'm like, why is everything moving? It's one of the most surreal moments of my life. Uh, have you ever seen or been a part of a hurricane? We lived in Florida for nine years. We, we, we got to experience that. What about tornadoes? All of creation groans. How does creation, I know, like that. It's like a, ugh. Those of you at home, that was just a child grunting, okay? All of creation groans. How does creation groan? It's groaning. You cannot turn on the weather and not see how the, how the world groans. If you go back to Genesis 1 and 2, do you see any of that mess? No. How was, how was everything watered? It doesn't even rain. It's watered Overnight, by a heavy dew, and in the morning, everything has a heavy dew and mist on it, and it's watered that way. There's not even a rain that comes down from heaven. It is the beautiful perfection of God's glorious creation before it's marred by sin and death. And now, since sin and death have come into the world through disobedience to God, even the very fabric of creation is in groaning 
Asteroids hurl through space. Disease manifests through the mutation of different cellular matter. Earthquakes, hurricanes, tsunamis. Everything in creation is groaning as if saying, please come back. Set us straight. Fix what's broken. Against its will, all creation is subjected to God's curse. Look at Genesis chapter 3. You'll know what I'm talking about. But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. For we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to this present time. And I can say that now in the year 2020. It's just as real today as it was when Paul wrote this some 2,000 years ago. And we believers also groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of that future glory, for we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. How many of you long to be released from the pains that you struggle with? And I'm not just talking about psychological or emotional. Think of the physical pains that you deal with. Yes, your body is feeling the evidence of sin and death. But as a believer in Christ, you know that this light and temporary trial, that your own body will not be able to hold you back from the eternal realities of God's true love in heaven. We groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a future uh, as a foretaste of future glory, for we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. We too wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as, he, as his adopted children, including the new bodies that he promised for us. And I'm telling you, these new bodies will never experience the withering, the pain, the disease of any pandemic or any cancer or anything that this world is thrown at it, it will not exist in God's kingdom. We too wait with eager hope. If we already have something we don't need to hope, if we already have something we don't need to hope for it. This is just sheer logic, right? If we already have it, do you need to hope for it? No. But if we look forward to something we don't yet have, we must wait patiently and confidently. And therein lies the crux of the issue. Are you waiting patiently and confidently? No matter what you've gone through, what you're going through, are you waiting through that patiently because you believe in the promises of God? And here's where he closes out this section. And the Holy Spirit helps us in weakness. For example, we don't know what God wants us to pray for. Have you ever felt that way? God, I know I need to, but I don't know what to pray. I don't know. I don't even have words to even coalesce to make a sentence, much less to pray a long treatise to you. But he goes on to say, but the Holy Spirit prays for us with groanings that cannot be expressed in words. Have you ever felt such deep, deep, deep anguish or deep joy or whatever and your heart is just breaking? But words won't come. Do you know the Holy Spirit, if you are a child of God, the Holy Spirit in you says, Father, I know, I know the words they want to speak, so I'll speak on their behalf. I'll intercede in this moment because they can't do it for themselves, so I will pray for them. 
And the Father who knows all hearts knows what the Spirit is saying, for the Spirit pleads for us believers in harmony with God's own will. And here's the verse that oftentimes gets misrepresented. And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his good purpose for him. It doesn't say that God causes everything to be good. Do you hear me? Because this is how it's oftentimes misrepresented. Or I hear it quoted like this, God causes all things to work together for good, period. Well, good, he should work everything to work together for my good. No, because there's a caveat. God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his good purpose. It's those people who have said, Jesus, I love you. God, you are my God. There is none other but you. My life is yours. I'm at your command. I'm at your disposal. I'll do whatever, go wherever. I am completely yours. There is no area of my life off limits. You can have all of me. And then the one who has heard the voice of God say, okay, come, follow me. They're called according to his good purpose, not their good purpose. But I want my good purposes to happen. I want my dreams for my life to happen. You will never know the true reality of your dreams coming true apart from God. And maybe God's dreams for you are different than yours, but they are going to be better than you could ever imagine yours could have ever been. If you've been wandering away from your heart's true home, which is Jesus, then maybe it's time for you to come home. Maybe you've never really been home. Maybe you've been a nomad your whole life. And you don't know what this home is because every home you've been a part of has been so dysfunctional, has been so destructive that you don't even know what home is. He's calling you to come home to the real home, the good home, the perfect home. If you found yourself at the end of your rope or even maybe in the middle of it, don't get to the end. If you can find yourself in the middle and change, then do it now. What are you waiting for? God's desire is to make you new and washed clean of the sin in your life. You are struggling with doubt, tossed about like a small boat on a wild, tumultuous ocean of confusion, frustration, and maybe even anger. God desires to rescue you, but you have to be willing to be rescued. No matter who you are, what you've done, how far you've drifted, or how lost you may be, God welcomes you home. Let me pray as our group gets ready to come out. Heavenly Father, only you know our hearts. You only know our true desires. No one else. We can hide everything from everybody else in life. But God, you alone know everything about us. We are an open book to you. So help us, Father, not to hide anymore or to run from you or to continue to be lost in doubt or tossed about by the fears of this world. Forgive us of our sin. Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God, give us a new life. 
Bring us home, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us this week. Check back next week as we dig deeper and go further in our understanding of God's Word. Make sure to visit us on our website, www.northmaincog.org, where you can learn more about us. If you found value in today's message, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes, or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would be helpful too. Donating to the ongoing ministry of North Main is easy. Just go to our website and click on the Give tab at the top of the screen. Thanks for listening. We look forward to you joining us again next week.